what's up everyone and welcome to plhb radio play hard and love big radio is the official podcast of spotted dog yoga and sup based out of Folsom, california play hard and love big radio is dedicated to bringing you the inspirational people and the inspirational stories to help you connect to your center so that you can go out and live your most purposeful and passionate life and i'm so excited today right now to have my good friend dan nevins on the show with us dan nevins and i connected through the baptiste yoga community and dan is a warrior speaker and a teacher welcome to the show buddy thanks brother so good to be here appreciate you uh having me on and also just get a chance to catch up man it's been a a little too long not like crazy long but a little too long so i'm excited to to see what's happening same here, man. Actually, the last time that we hung out in the flesh was in San Francisco for the mm-hmm. veterans yoga teacher training. You remember that? I do. Yep, absolutely. The uh, unbreakable training that, w- that we did. You and I were um, staying at Sean's place and we were both in the treehouse. We were roommates <laughs> that weekend. That's it, man. That house <laughs> is legit, though. If they could just add a bathroom, uh, you know, peeing, peeing off the balcony... <laughs> into i mean there's something kind of primal about that too it's kind of nice <laughs> but you know gets a little weird when you start pooping off the balcony <laughs> yeah, right but i, I mean, mean i mean weird is relative right <laughs> <laughs> yeah i mean weird is relative well let me hey y'all i want to tell you one quick story about dan and then i'm going to give him the i'm going to give him the reins and let him share his story and we'll move through the podcast but when spotted dog yoga and sub opened 10 years ago Dan Nevins was one of our first guest speakers and teachers, and Dan came to town and put on a show. I remember people talking about that for years, and people still talk about you um, when you came in and how you inspired and changed their lives. Personally, from Katie and I's perspective, uh, it was the energetic bolt that got Spotted Dog Yoga off of the ground. And I remember the evening after Dan's sessions, we went downtown, historic Folsom, and we had dinner at Chicago Fire. And kicking back, having a great time and whatnot. Um, And I remember asking you, Dan, I said, hey, Dan, how much money do I need to write you for this check for you coming out here? You flew all the way out here. You put on these sessions all weekend long. You're like, ah, let me think about it, you know? So a couple weeks later, I reach out. I'm like, Dan, how much do I owe you, man? I'm going to write you a check. (laughs) And he said, you know what? Just think of this as a wedding present for you and Katie. And um, man, that was really... It brings up some emotion right up from the start, man. It was one of the neatest things you could have done and did. And not only did you make a huge difference for all the people that you touched that weekend, but that made a huge difference for us and our lives. And we believe that a huge part part of our success at Spotted Dog Yoga is because of everything you've done for us all the way through. So I just want to say thank you, man. Oh, man. It is uh, it's an honor and privilege. I think that's what... Um... I don't know if the if I could, if I, if I have the sort of authority to say I think that's what the world is missing. It's just people being good to each other, right? Not being like if you can be good to someone without being bad to yourself, like you, then that that's what I think that's what we should do. You know, as a uh, as human beings on this earth, I mean, the world is man, it's crazy out there. You know, uh, if you I don't watch the news, but if you were to watch the news, I get enough from like my little channels that I sort of observe the world from, you know, if you look around, you know, everybody's talking about how different we are and et cetera, picking sides, all this. And I'm like, man, if we just stopped to realize uh, how much we're so 
much more the same as each other uh, than we are different. And if we just I mean, found a way to treat people in the way that uh, we would like to be treated in, you know, in a certain situation, man, like then the world would probably be pretty awesome. I mean, it's still awesome, but you know, you know, the, the, the awesome side is uh, struggling, you know, with, with all the sort of negativity happening in the world. So uh, it is cool to be able to uh, share space. Uh, even we go back 10 years, right. Uh, to share well, a little longer than that, but to share space and, uh, just have a chance to be together yeah. and uh, bring some East Coast love out there to the West Coast. Yeah, we need some of that, man. Some of that intensity that you got out there in the East Coast. Although I think uh, Florida is probably a little bit different, a little less intense than the far East Coast, right? Yeah, it is. It, it, we Well, we have a little bit of everything. I, I call it when I go, I'm in New York a lot and I'll say, uh, you know, I'm in Florida. I mean, South New York, right? Because <laughs> like everybody comes down eventually, right? Uh, it's pretty hard to find a native Floridian. I mean, they're here, obviously, but, you know, there's a lot of people who are just from somewhere else. Mm -hmm. I'm sure it's like that in California as well. I'm yes. probably everywhere at this point. Yeah, similar everywhere, it seems like, you know, but Florida, for sure, escaping the wintertime to get down there and warm up a little bit. It's it. Snowbirds, the as snow they call it. The snowbirds. That's right. Speaking of that, I told you already, but I want to let the guests know that I wore this shirt today, this red shirt, because... Well, it makes it, it makes me feel like it's Christmas that I have you on this podcast, dude. It's like actually like 68 degrees outside here in Florida. And so that is uh that's good. Like that is goodness cuz it was kind of it was kind of cooking the summer. So, yeah, kind of like a little bit of fall weather for you. I know your request was that I wore a, a sparkly speedo and a tank top <laughs> yes. and a biker hat, right? <laughs> I forgot. Mine was I was going to wear mine, but it's still in the laundry. Um, cuz I uh, Got it messed up last night. Well, that's one of those things I think was kind of funny about the, like in 2020 when everybody started getting in, into Zoom and still now is you just never know if somebody has pants on. <laughs> True. You're like, you don't know. I can't, I'm not going to show you. Yeah. I don't want to know. Yeah. Keep it above, keep it above the chest there, dude, right. or whatever. Keep it up here. Above the belly, man, for sure. Oh my goodness. Um, So it sounds like you're into a, some serious, serious golfing, huh? Yeah. Like I just, well, I used to be, I used to play a lot. And used to be pretty good, um, especially for a guy with no legs. <laughs> but uh, you know, you know, life, travel, work kind of happens, and then you play less and less and less and less. But one of the one of the things I realized while I was uh, convalesced over the last year and a half um, was, man, I got to move my body in a way that feels really good, you know. And there was a good while, like for a while, even after I got all this you know, I had stage three colon cancer and a, a surgery that failed. And, you know, I was flat on my back for months and months and like exposed organs. Like, I mean, just bad, like just bad, bad. And then, so when I was finally able to get up and get moving, like yoga was a little out of the question just because I was still very sensitive in my abdominal area, like upward facing dog took a while to even think about doing, mm -hmm. um, but like I could twist and run. I was like, oh, I got to get back out on the golf course. And like that has been, uh, it's been a little bit of a lifesaver, like a life raft, if you will. It's like oh, I kind of threw myself that that opportunity to like say, oh, I'm like maybe I can still do it. And I still had a little little game left. So it's uh, it was good to not be super terrible like I thought I was going to be. Yeah. And then realize like, oh, well, I can still do it. Kind of like riding a bike, maybe. 
Yeah, a little bit, a little bit. You know, like that whole saying, like if you've done it before, you can do it again. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, and and like like riding a bike, but the bike has like six wheels that are in different angles, and the pedal, <laughs> one pedal's missing, right? You can still do it. <laughs> totally, man. Uh, well, hey, let's talk about your background for some of the listeners who don't know who you are. Mm-hmm. Um, you grew up in Baltimore. Is that I correct? did. I did. Yeah. Yeah. What was that? What was that like growing up in Baltimore? What was your childhood like? So, man, it was. Um, you know, I, I talk about it sometimes. I'm like, have you ever seen The Wire, the show, and like, you know, the drug gangs and the crooked cops and that whole kind of deal? I was like The Wire adjacent, so I was just right over the city line in Baltimore County. But that's where, see, the Baltimore County didn't have like anti-gang units, anti-drug units, task force, SWAT team. So, like, a lot of that criminal activity was in Baltimore County because they just were able to get away with it a little easier and just go right across the city line, which was like a five minute walk, you know? Mm-hmm. So, uh, it was, a. Uh, it, it could be worse, but it was rough. You know, uh, a lot of, uh, violence, like even, even walking to school, I'd have to dodge the little drug lieutenants hanging out like on the corners. And I was just, you know, this little, I was always a little kid, you know? Even when I thought I was big, you know, I'm still little. And then so I just get messed with all the time. Uh, you know, I mean, it's it's tough to say bullied because I don't think bullied's the right word. Like threatened, threatened, you know, I was, and it was probably like looking back now, they were probably just messing with me. But when you're a kid and you have this grown man showing you his gun and like threatening you, you really don't you don't think it's a joke or you don't, you you know, you're pretty uh, uncertain about if you're going to get out of that situation. Okay. So it was like that uh, sort of picture. And my, my mom left when I was a kid to like 13. So, and my dad was a truck driver. He was gone all the time. So my brother and I kind of raised ourselves. Hmm. Uh, And that's one, one of the reasons I joined the army was like, I need to escape. Like I need to, like how, like I always knew I'm like, I gotta do something different like I'd look around my landscape and you know, I'd see people that were like you know grades ahead of me and they're like still living in their parents house or you're they're dealing like low-level drug dealers and I'm like man I, that's not what I want and then so it's weird but it's fortunate that uh the Gulf War so it was like 1990 91 the Gulf War started and then you know all the American flags came back out and uh, that sort of renewed sense of patriotism, even though it wasn't our country that was being invaded. It was like we were standing up for that classic bully scenario. I mean, who knows the actual truth of like what was really happening geopolitically, but the narrative was, you know, like this, you know, this uh, renewed sense of patriotism. And we were going to go and, you know, support our way of life overseas. So, it, you know, wouldn't happen at home. And so like that, was sort of the impetus to be like, okay, this is the military, something I should do because not only do I get to like serve my country and sort of stand up for that whole bully situation uh, and take up arms, like actually be, have a fair fight in that situation, which was like as a kid, all those almost fights and threatening, like they weren't very fair. Um, little retribution, weirdly enough. Um, and, I got to, I got to leave. I got to like escape. And so that was, um, 
that was cool. It was like a, a way out that became a whole, I guess, part of who I am now. Mm -hmm. Yeah, totally. And what was your experience in serving? Like, how did how did it go? How long were you in Iraq? <clears throat> and then well, how I did it transform from there? Yeah, it's crazy because I joined initially like, okay, I'm going to do four years and I'm going to do the GI Bill and the college fund, get money for college. I'll be the first person in my family to go to college. Like, oh, I was like so excited. And then, um, so I did, I, I joined initially for four years. My first duty station was in Germany. So it was, that was actually really cool. Cause I got to be the poor kid from Baltimore. You know, we grew up really poor. So like, I know I'm like in Europe and I could just hop on a train and go to Florence or Paris or, you know, I got to travel all over Europe and like see all the things that I saw like in my history books and in grade school, you know? And it was like, it was eye opening. It made me just, you know, culturally open my eyes. I learned how to speak German while I was stationed over there and met really great German friends who I'm still friends with today. Wow. But then I did the thing, um, and not, I can't say unfortunately, because I have an amazing daughter out of it and, um, who's tw 29. I can't believe I have a 29 year old daughter. I'm like, wow. how is she older than me? It doesn't make any sense. But, <laughs> <laughs> How'd you pull like, that off? <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, you know, I got married very young to a, a, a woman I should not have gotten involved with. Um, so I wound up, you know, she literally went sideways in her life and I raised our daughter together. So I was basically a single dad. And um, so then at that time, like I'm getting out of the army. I'm basically a single dad. I'm like, what am I going to do? So I reenlisted, did four more years to Fort Bragg, North Carolina, because I was, I was a paratrooper. So when I went to Germany, I, I was like, oh, there's no airborne units in Germany. I, so I, I learned how to jump out of airplanes and wear the maroon beret and be all like cool, but I didn't get to do it. So I reenlisted to have that opportunity to do that. And Fort Bragg in the Fort Bragg, North Carolina is the best place in the world to be in the army. I mean, I believe, um, you know, you have special operations there. You have, you know, 82nd Airborne Division. I was in headquarters of 18th Airborne Corps. So, you know, it's a four hour recall to anywhere in the world that sort of like, you know, beat your chest and be like, if anything happens, I'm going to be the one that's going, you know, like that sort of a uh, uh, macho masculine vibe. Yeah. But I absolutely loved it. But it was peacetime army. And I was successful, but I was like, I time to turn the page, got out, and then simultaneously reenlisted into the National Guard, first in Maryland, right? Because I was going to go home because I was like, oh, I get to go home. Because when you're gone for eight years, you start to get homesick. At least, at least, I think most people do, but I certainly did. And then I got home. I was enrolled in university at the University of Maryland. I had to wait to start the, you know, the fall semester. And I just started looking around and all my friends were living in their parents' basements, hmm. low level drug dealers, like that whole, and I was like, you know, sort of the same thing I escaped if, if I, for some reason thought it was going to be different, but it wasn't. Yeah. So I just packed up all my stuff and moved to California, but, uh, NorCal. So up in Sonoma County. Mm -hmm. And so I went to school at Sonoma state, graduated, but that whole time, you know, studied business there, uh, loved it. It was a great, great vibe. Met, you know, was got remarried to like a, a, a much better version of a wife. <laughs> We're not together anymore. So now I'm on number three. 
Third, third time's third the term. Time's charm. That's right. And your new wife's, uh, her name is Kaylin. Is that correct? Kaylin, that's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And she's absolutely incredible. Yeah. Um, Congratulations, man. Thank you. Mm-hmm. And so uh, I stayed in the National Guard that whole time, right? So one week in a month, two weeks a year. Uh, you know, I was in the Guard when 9-11 happened. Mm-hmm. And then so there was a sort of scare that we might be called up. I actually went to some stateside deployment. Um, which wasn't that called Operation Noble Eagle. It was just an inconvenience to be pulled out of school for six months. So then it, it delayed my graduation from college, but then I went back, graduated, and then a year later was deployed. And now I'm a, a pharmaceutical sales rep working for Pfizer, like just built a house on a vineyard. Like there was a Cabernet vineyard as far as you can see from my bed. I mean, it's it was somebody else's Cabernet vineyard, but it felt like it was mine, right? Like I could, <laughs> I could see it all, but it just, it, my little fence was there. And then a Cabernet vineyard, as far as you could see, uh, you know, I felt like I made it, you know, and you know, the poor kid from Baltimore done good, paid his dues, went to school, first person's family to graduate college, like that whole, like life is going well. And then boom, deployed to Iraq and uh, supposed to be for six months. Turned out it was 18 months. Um, but I only did a year of that deployment because on November 10th of 2004, I was severely catastrophically wounded by uh, an improvised explosive device that detonated beneath my vehicle as we were headed out for a 72-hour dismounted counterinsurgent operation. So the idea was we were going to drive out to where the bad guys were supposed to be, kind of hop out of the trucks, do our little dismount, sneaky patrol to you know handle business come home. That was the idea. Uh, but we were headed out. I mean, not even a kilometer outside of LSA Anaconda where we're stationed, pitch black outside, uh, eerily silent. I just remember, you know, when we left the main gates of LSA Anaconda it was exactly zero, 400 hours, like, like right on time. And, and to being deployed, it's worth mentioning being deployed from the California national guard, I'm not trying to disparage the National Guard or, or California or the California Guard at all, but like we were not ready. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, looking at the training records for my battalion, you'd realize that, you know, people hadn't shot their weapon in more than six years and people hadn't done a physical fitness test in longer than that. Like it was like we were not this epitome of readiness as like you'd imagine, right? It, which, which it is now because we learned hard lessons in the sort of the introduction to the global war on terror. Yeah. Um, so it was a steep learning curve. So when we got in the theater, I mean, we didn't think we were going to do anything significant, but somehow we wound up on the, my whole company of combat engineers. So I was in the combat engineer company. We wound up in this infantry task force called task force Tacoma. So they reorganized our whole company. So it was our company of combat engineers. Now they wave their magic wand for infantry. Uh, a company of Abrams tanks, and then a platoon of scouts. And so they made us this task force and we were assigned to, or attached to 1st Infantry Division. And so it was our job to act on operational intelligence. You know, so like here we were, like I affectionately called us the Beverly Hillbillies uh, because I, I remember distinctly, we're in Kuwait, we're about to like roll through Baghdad and then up MSR Tampa, which was like the devil's highway, the death highway. You know, it was all these like, 
you're gonna get attacked. It's like gonna happen. There was all these like inevitables of like, oh, if you're on MSR Tampa, you're, you know, you're going to get hit. But we had to go through MSR Tampa to get to Balad Air Base, aka LSA Anaconda, which is where we were going to be. And I just remember we're rolling out, so there's that tension in the air, right? Like you're going, you're going to get in a firefight. You are going to get attacked. Okay, it's mm-hmm. going to happen. And so, like, I'm stacking grenades in my vest, and and I'm just looking around, and we're wearing desert camouflage uniforms, but woodland camouflage vests, you know, with our sappy plates, the sort of bulletproof plates, and. Our helmets, some of them didn't even have helmet covers, but it's like wood. Like we're all mismatched. Our weapons were literally like not kidding from the Vietnam era. Oh, wow. Like so we have these like antiquated weapons that hadn't been shot in years and years. And I'm like, I'm like, I'm like, we're it? <laughs> like I heard banjos playing. Like it was like, no, 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 here we go. And our vehicles were like woodland green, not even camouflaged because they'd been worked on so much and so many different hodgepodge pieces. And we didn't have, we had um, no roofs. We had like plywood huh. as our roof with like duct tape, which we called a hundred mile an hour tape and like paracord tying down pieces of plywood and like, we had, since we're a national guard, we had a lot of different like civilian job sets that were, you know, in our group. And so we had welders that were like welding pieces of steel where we didn't have doors. Okay. Like it was like, literally like, I'm like, I can't believe oh, we're the most professional army in the world, but like, this is what we're rolling with. <laughs> and what was extra funny was, I mean, I know it's making the story longer than it has to be, but what was extra funny was, so we're in Kuwait, so we're leaving and protecting these gates of Kuwait, which was like relatively, there's nothing happening in Kuwait. Like it wasn't dangerous. Were active duty Marines and active duty army guys with like the best gear possible. Like they're like, they have all the right stuff. Everything's matching. They have the latest and greatest of everything. And they're staying where it's peaceful and nothing is happening. And we're going into like, Eminent danger, allegedly, and we have like the hoopties. We got we got the, like the leftovers of like the army re- refurbished depot, right? Like, yeah. And then here we go. Um, Interesting. Yeah, crazy. But we got into theater and uh, got assigned to that task force and learned some really tough lessons. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, we started losing people, and then as a result of losing really good men. Like I, I I say men not to be exclusive of women, but we didn't have women at all. We were a combat arms infantry company. It's a little different today, but back then just all guys, all guys. And we, you know, we started losing these, these great men and there's something really powerful about goals. Um, and if you're in business, you know about goals. I know you yourself and your wife, you know about goals and like what it takes to you know achieve a goal and then what the consequence of not achieving your goal means for your life. Mm-hmm. And in this situation, the consequence of not meeting your goal and our goal was to at least rise to, I mean, I, it would be wrong of me to say rise to mediocrity, but we were less than mediocre to begin with, right? But rise to be effective. Like, can we... Can we be an effective combat unit, like door kickers? And like, can can we elevate? Because we had some, you know, 
weight issues for, for, for some of our folks and untrained in, but here's what I'm really trying to say is the consequence, when the consequence of not meeting your goal to be an effective combat unit, when that consequence of not meeting that goal is that your best friends die, uh, the amount of human transformation potential in those moments are uh, all inspiring. And so I got to be witness as a leader uh, to be witness to this incredible human transformation, to watch people who were terrified, uh, untrained, not ready, you know, fill in the blank of like any, like, um, you know, talk about you know, negative self-talk. Like we're not ready. Like that whole, it was, it was an attitude, but that got better. And then we got better and we got to be really good. And, uh, and that's powerful. But what anyway, did what did it yeah, take for, what did it take for you as a leader to get people to the point where they were letting go of their negative self-talk and they were stepping into the their role in a more powerful way? That's a really great great question and the answer to that is I had to stop it for myself. Got it. You know, uh I guess I'll share this story too. It's it's one I'm not proud of, but it's real, right? When we first got into theater, like we didn't know what we were going to do. Like we're going to be at Ellis Anaconda. Oh, then, you know, what's going to happen? We're reorganized as infantry, but like, what are we really going to do? This is before we got assigned to this task force. And we were going to do like gate guard, like be on the, the entry control point, like the front gates. And then in the towers, like watching over the, the base. And I was like, oh, that's really the pushing the extent of, of what we're going to do. And then turns around, we're getting assigned to this task force, and then we're going to be kicking in doors and chasing them bad guys. And I was terrified. I was like, not with, not with these people, um, not with the Beverly Hillbillies, you know. And it was not a, it was not coming from a good place because I wasn't too far separated from active duty, you know. I still had friends that were still in. And, you know, at Fort Bragg and 18th Airborne Corps and 82nd. And so I, I literally went to the internet cafe. This is before you can use a phone. Like we, you know, it was basically the stone ages. And I emailed like everybody I still knew on active duty. Hey, are you, I wasn't trying to leave combat or leave my deployment. I was trying to leave my unit. Mm-hmm. I was like, is there any, do you have anything open? Can, are you downrange? Can I, can you, can you get me assigned back to like you people I trust? And um, fortunately, all those emails went unanswered and we just got thrown into the fire. And I've never been so blessed to have been in the position that I was because I had to learn those hard lessons myself um, that, you know, God put me there for a reason. Like this is what's happening. And, and to, to say make the best of it sounds cliche. But um, but this is what's happening. And if I'm going to do it, like we're going to go all in. And then so when I realized that I had to get out of that mindset of I'm scared and I don't want to be here and realizing like this is where we are and we better be good at it. <clears throat> then from that place, once I got settled there, then I could be the example for people and, and speak real yeah. about it. Yeah. That's amazing. I feel like um, people in everyday life do that. They look for ways to take mm-hmm. themselves out as opposed to just allowing themselves to be where they are. Mm-hmm. And then, and then 
you know, by the grace of God in some way, shape or form, we end up being where we're supposed to be. And exactly. Yeah. Okay. So then what happens next? So headed out for this mission, like again, yeah. not even a kilometer outside the base. And then boom, the silence of that uh, pre-dawn was destroyed by the deafening blast that sent my 18,000 pound up armored vehicle. By this time we're in better vehicles. Like we, we, we have got better weapons for better vehicles. Like we're actually more prepared. Like we're in the fight. You're in the mindset, more of in a mindset as a group. Oh yeah. Right. Yeah. We were like ready. Like we were ready. We were so ready to go yeah. do this. Yeah. Um, because it was one of those, you know, it, it, to, to give it some texture for people that, that might not understand. There's a lot of, um, especially where we were in Balad, it's kind of rural. It's right on the, the, the uh, Tigris river. And so there's like, it's kind of a lush landscape, giant date palms, pomegranate orchards, orange groves, grape vineyards. Like there's, it's, it's beautiful, actually. Wow. It's not very deserty, you know, which a lot of people kind of feel that it might be. But typically, most of the missions you're getting is like, okay, you're going to do a patrol or you're going to go meet with the local leaders and like uh, give candy and soccer balls to the kids, like sort of that, what they called hearts and minds. But it was great because you got to interact with locals and they'd tell you where the bad guys were. And then, you know, most of the, the sort of lion's share of the time, it was like, you're just kind of being present and observing for danger, but there's not a lot. Of, and then you get an IED attack or maybe a small pop on ambush and you'd handle business or, you know, or, or lose some people. Um, it's hard to say that. It's hard that I can say that no, non so nonchalantly, but that's just reality of it. And, um, but most of the time it's just sort of, you're on hyper alert, but you're just kind of going through this routine situation. Um, so when the operations came that were like, no, 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 you're going to have an engagement. Like the threat level is ultra high. We totally expect you to be engaged. We expect to engage the enemy and we expect them to be ready for us, right? So those are like really high pressure situations. And uh, this was one of those, but we were ready, prepared. Um, I was leading this particular operation. My, my boss my platoon sergeant was the first squad leader of third platoon. My platoon sergeant should have been leading it, but he was having hernia surgery that same day. And he wound up driving the vehicle that I was in because he was the type that he couldn't just let his men go in harm's way without him being there as long as he could. And so he volunteered to drive and, and drove my vehicle, the lead vehicle in a six vehicle convoy headed out to where we were going to get dropped off. And then again, the idea to go sneak through the bushes for lack of a better word to go find the bad guys. And um, when we hit that IED, there was 255 millimeter artillery shells that blew up right underneath my feet and I'm sitting behind the driver. So though that explosion and the, the corresponding shrapnel from those 155 millimeter artillery shells shredded Mike into pieces um, who was driving and then my legs and I remember, you know, when the explosion happened, I, my head was bowed in prayer like it was before every mission. And when, you know, boom, I just remember not so much a loud noise, but like I could, my ears were ringing and I could hear 
the truck basically disintegrate around my body. Like it sounded like shaking bolts in a jar almost. And I might've been knocked out for a second or two. I'm not sure. But when I opened my eyes, I realized that I was ejected from the truck and I'm laying in the dirt. The doors are blown off. Um, and my legs are stuck in the, in the, I couldn't get them out. So I just remember this dust was, was flowing. I could see a little more now cause it was pitch black, but there was some fire from the blast that was sort of the sort of little, I, I want to be clear here. It wasn't this big giant fire. There are little pieces of fire from like all the oil and transmission fluid that was blown out of the engine. And those little pockets were catching on fire in my vehicle. Um, so I could see some now with the light from the fire and the dust was descending and I saw my weapon stuck in the door frame of the vehicle. And I just remember saying to myself, Dan, get up, put your weapon into operation. Dan, get up, put your weapon into operation. And I couldn't move. I still don't know why, like physically I couldn't move at all. And then I looked, I guess I can move my head because I remember turning my head and then I saw Mike and I was painfully obvious that, that 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 he was no longer with us and made the ultimate sacrifice and then i was like realizing that i was probably hurt pretty bad like more than i knew and i just remember like pausing for a minute and listening and i just heard my team moving securing the perimeter doing everything they're supposed to be doing and i'm supposed to be the guy yelling out commands for them to do everything that they were doing but i wasn't i was saying nothing but they're still doing everything right and I was just like, I caught my breath for a second. I was like, okay, I better check myself out. My, I grabbed my helmet and it came apart in two pieces in my hand. And I was like, shit, <laughs> right? But I'm like, I'm conscious, right? So that's good. Like I don't, my head wasn't hurting at that moment. And I was, we were trained to start with our head and then go down to see if you're bleeding, you know, all this stuff. And I just remember I could, my hands were stinging, but I could, you know, my head is, taste of blood in my mouth. My face was really hot. My face just felt really hot. My ears were still ringing. I had that taste of blood in my mouth and I'm doing all this and I'm checking myself and there's a little bit of light, but it's still dark, right? So make no mistake about it. It's still, you're very confused and disoriented. At least I was just being yeah. blown up like that. And I remember I reached up for my legs and my legs are still attached, but they're stuck in the vehicle because the undercarriage of the truck had like exploded upwards and pinned my legs in like a peeling back a tin can and smashing something in it and i reached up for my legs and i felt the unmistakable arterial blood spurt with every beat of my heart and i i knew i was gonna die i was saying goodbye to my wife my 10 year old daughter was giving up and losing but seemed like all of my blood in this miserable place on the planet. And then I just, you know how they say, um, oh, when you're about to die, your life flashes before your eyes. Um, that wasn't really my experience. It was more like a slideshow of things like left undone. Maybe call them like unrealized goals. I don't know. And I can't, I remember the quality of it, but I don't remember the images specifically. But I do remember the last image and it was my 10 year old daughter, but all grown up, dressed in white head to toe and walking down the aisle with, without her dad. And, and I just, I shot up, 
Like it was the, like, I could just, I shot up and I was like, I'm alive and I better like do something to keep it that way. And I just reached my hand and the wound in my thigh, like some, some of the shrapnel from the blast had torn through my thigh, like all the way to my femur and actually punched a big hole out of the roof of the Humvee, the half inch steel roof of this Humvee. Damn. And I just pressed against the piece of shrapnel that was still lodged in my femur. Like some of it stayed behind. I just remember feeling it was hot and and goopy. Like I thought of, I thought I was going to be like MacGyver and like, dude, God, just grab the artery, pinch it off. Like I'm good. I got it. Like, you know, but it just wasn't like that. I just pressed and prayed that it would give enough time for a medic to arrive. And like, I was kind of fading in and out. It's like I blinked my eyes and there was my medic. This guy named Dan Smee. Um, he just looked at me in the face and lying to me saying, sorry, Nevins, you're going to be all right. Well, he was screaming it. Sorry, Nevins, you're going to be all right. And uh, I blinked again. There was a tourniquet on my leg. Blinked again. One of my team leaders was putting an IV in my arm to get my blood pressure back up because I lost probably, I mean, most of my blood. And, and then my whole team was there putting themselves in harm's way to remove my legs from that vehicle that was still on fire. And then on a helicopter back to the combat surgical hospital, which is right next to the main gates of LSA and the condo that I just left maybe 10 minutes before. And then so thankfully for that proximity and the blood bank that they had there, they were able to get my blood pressure back up and do the whole thing and surgery. And I woke up and there was a combat nurse's face right in mine. She just didn't want me to look down. And uh, she said, sorry, Nevin, you're a very lucky man. We managed to repair your femoral artery. Uh, we had to take your left leg below the knee, manage to save your right one for now, but you'll probably lose that one too. She was right. And uh, man, I was like uh, instantly in the hole. Like what can a guy with no legs do? Mm. You know, uh, oh, how's my wife going to love me? I just took myself down that sort of pity party road. Yeah. And then I took a breath and then I looked off to my left side and then there was just my, so I'm in a, I'm in a tent. So I say hospital, commissary hospital, it's a tent. Mm-hmm. And against the wall of the tent was just my whole team, my family. Just waiting for me to wake up. You know, and they, I just remember they surrounded my bed. <laughs> and we told horribly inappropriate jokes, <laughs> which is like, I think what we do. It's sort of <laughs> how we love each other in the army. And I yeah. think it's kind of like dudes too. Like how we love each other is like, make fun of each other, like, you know, like, you know, from love, but there's no exception to that in the military. Yeah. And then, uh, told stories about Mike, who I wear this bracelet for every day. And, uh, I fell asleep and woke up at Longstreet Regional Medical Center, bunch of surgeries there. Ultimately at Walter Reed, where I spent two years and 30 some different surgeries. And then, uh, transitioning out and going back to the real, real world. Wow, man. Hey, you know, uh, I've, I've heard you tell this story quite a few times and I know you tell it on the regular. What is, Mm -hmm. how has it been healing for you to share your story? Oh man, it is. So there's a lot of, uh, psychological terms for this, like immersion therapy and whatever, but there's, you have to tell your stories, especially if they're traumatic. Because what, I mean, it's profoundly impactful for me. Like I started telling my story um, way back when I was at Walter Reed to sort of help Wounded Warrior Project was barely existing back then. 
And then so they were the ones in the hospital, like getting things done and like actually making stuff happen and help. Like they were the ones that helped me prove that my disability didn't define me, but like taking me out to go snowboarding and wakeboarding and, you know, bringing my family and having like together this time and realize, no, oh, I can still do this without legs, you know, like mm -hmm. that whole thing. And so mm -hmm. I started telling my story to help them fundraise because I was, you know, it was, it's a whole other story, but at Congressional Golf Club, it turns out you have to be like really wealthy to be a member there. Um, and we needed a golf tournament there and it cost $4,000 to play in this golf tournament. It was a fundraiser for Wounded Warrior Project. And I thought that was a lot of money until I realized the net worth of the people that were there. And so at the end of that tournament, I asked, I said, can I just get, have the microphone? And I impromptu told my story for the first time, like everything, everything that happened. I was, I mean, Nick, tears, snot, like I struggled through it. Yeah. And then I asked, like, like I was, I was in sales, so I have no problem asking people for money. So after I was done with the snot and tears, I sort of like brought myself back into reality and said, and you mother effers, but I didn't say ever should be ashamed of yourself. Um, I thought like, I was like, I thought $4,000 is a lot of money. It is for me, but it's not for you. And I know it. And so what I'm asking you to do, I'm not asking you to take food out of your family's mouth, but I'm asking you to write a check that hurts just a little, right? Just a little. And uh, we raised like an extra $280,000 that day no, uh, no. for the Warrior Project. And um, <laughs> then, and I'm not saying this because it, it's actually good, but I just remember, because uh, they had no real money back then. I just remember we, I'd go to another event and they're like, hey, Dan, you 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 want to say anything you know like sort of right <laughs> yeah they kind of like kept so, putting you in a place where you could share your story right, right. really yeah yeah and then yeah. so i it started doing it and the more i told my story not only the more i remembered ah. right and then the but the, i got to like bring it all back out in front of me and instead of it being stored as one of the most painful days of my life excluded like watching one of my best friends, like literally in pieces and the, and, you know, and like that whole image and you know, how jarring that is to think about, but I still see everything, but the, my, my relationship to it is completely transformed. Like now I don't see the death, destruction, Matt, like I'm not angry. I got to be like, wow, like I get to like, I can't change, I can't change it. I mean, obviously I, I would if I could, but that's not a thing that we can do. So I was able to transform those emotions and now I can see the picture, right? But I'm left with, man, how much admiration I had for Mike. What a, like, what a great human being he was. And I still have a relationship with his children. Wow. You know, like I'm able to tell stories about Mike and like propagate his memory out into the world and like feel and feel good about it. And then remember things and then not only remember, but then, okay, so what is there to learn about it? So the more I get to share my story, one, from a place of sort of vulnerability, right? Um, and, you know, not to sound cliche, like when, when you share from that place, it gives other, other people permission to share from that place. And yeah. so when you can share your story of like trauma and heartbreak you know, whatever that is, however the world was like against you, you know, when you can share that story, then now other people feel comfortable sharing their story. And then you really get to know people too. Mm. 
And like that is, I think, what brings the world together. So not only did my relationship to that trauma transform, but then it's sort of like as a storyteller, I get to share stories like that. Then other people get a little bit of courage to share their story. Mm-hmm. And then they can have that benefit of transforming their relationship to the pain. You know, we focus a lot, especially in the military, on PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder. But truly, in my experience, at least with the, the community that I try to surround myself with, most of the people have been able to, through storytelling, through immersion therapy, through whatever means necessary, have actually transformed that into post-traumatic growth. I've learned so much more as a person. I'm so much more aware of this human experience for all people as a result of going through intense trauma. And so, I mean, I view it as a net positive for sure. And yeah, it sucks sometimes because I have to put prosthetic legs on and they get sore and, you know, swollen or and multiple surgeries. Like once you're an amputee, people might not know this, you're always having surgeries because things change and transform and it's, it's not perfect science, uh, the way prosthetics fit. So there's a lot of like ongoing stuff that could take you out, but then you're back in, you know? So, um, yeah, it's, it's totally a net positive. Like I, in a weird way, I wouldn't trade it. Yeah. It's, um, like we should start using the word, the, uh, PTG post-traumatic growth. growth. Yeah. I like that. Um, no, I know being around you, I just, just who you are and the way that you share, I feel like I can just be myself. And even if I'm not sharing a story or a, or some traumatic event per se, I am just like, feel comfortable around you because I know that you're being vulnerable and real with me. And I've always felt that way around you, you know, like, I know that's one of your qualities too, discernment. Yeah. Your your best qualities, right? Like intuitively, I just get this, I mean, amazing feeling around you, you know, man. Um, and how amazing and how amazing is that for wounded warriors you're still doing work with them right it's almost been like 15 years you've been working yeah it's crazy but um 16 years but okay so for the since 2015 i have i stopped working for them directly but i'm still involved like i still call myself a spokesperson um i actually did so wounded warrior project is 20 years old now and so i've been involved been involved for 19 yeah i started working for them 16 years ago um, and I had a you know bunch of big jobs and teams in the organization, and sort of feel like I got to contribute uh, in some small way to to the success of the organization, and to be able to serve more and more warriors and families. And um, but then uh, I found yoga, yeah, and, and at like a, the time in my life that I needed it the most, and uh, I was using, let me, let me refer. I was leveraging my sort of status in the organization as a, as a vice president and uh, as a wounded warrior myself to be like, you know what I'm just going to do is I'm just going to go teach yoga to all these different events of warriors. But meanwhile, I had like a real job I was supposed to be doing. Uh, So it got to the point and I was able to manage both. Like I was able to do both, but as the organization got more sophisticated and they were like, they hired the Bobs. Do you know who the, when I say the Bobs, that cultural reference from the office? Oh, no, or, I do or not office, know that. Spa- office space. Okay. But they brought in the Bobs to like reorganize. But the, these guys, these Bobs were just there to like define roles and job descriptions, sort of put organization to this 
awesome nonprofit that grew up really quick. Sure. And it was starting to get to this critical mass, like, okay, we need to really get disciplined and structured. And then, so I was telling the Bobs about how like, oh, I teach yoga, I have these roles. And then it got to the point with like the, the chiefs and the CEO of like, hey, so we love that you're doing this yoga stuff. It's actually wildly beneficial, but like, we need you to stay in this lane over here because that's the job description. And I was like, fuck you, I'm out. Like, you can't tell me like that whole, not that I'm proud of behaving that way. So then we uh, <laughs> reached a compromise where I still got to do as a contractor um, the work that I was most passionate about, which was helping people share their stories yeah. and working with that community and doing those things. Obviously not the scale that I was you know, being compensated, but whatever, but in a way that felt good. So yeah. then I could go do my own thing as a storyteller and teach yoga and keep uh, the involvement and the best parts of my job. Yeah, oh man, that's awesome that you're able to do have the both of Beth both the both the both of best worlds, right? Yeah, the both of best worlds. You got the both the best worlds. I try to say things backwards all the time. Katie half the time doesn't understand what I'm saying, you know. So all right. it's a good thing at least you're understanding me. I got you. Hey man, talk about talk about yoga a little bit. Touch on yeah. how how it's made a difference for you, how you still use it, and then um, well, and I also want to talk about your um your battle with cancer and um, how yeah. yoga helped you through that. But how, how has yoga made a difference for you in your life to the point and, where you want to share it the way that you yeah. do? It? Yeah. It's um, well, I was, first of all, just to be clear, I was like, what's yoga? I'm not a, you know, like I had the growing up in the ghetto, then being in the army version of like yoga. Ooh, and then the, that's what women do, right? Like it's one of those, and women are amazing. They're actually my favorite version of humanity are women. Um, but, you know, I'm, I'm, I don't in any way identify, right? So it's one of those like, oh, it's just, it's not for me. So I've always been like that. Like people, oh, you want to do yoga? I'm like, uh, no, it's weird that you're asking me, you know, like that, that kind of thing. Uh, and then I got in a dark place uh, with a surgery where I, you know, Typically, all my surgery had to be around a bunch of warriors and doing all the things. But this one, I had to take FMLA, Family Medical Leave Act, from Wounded Warrior Project, to go have a surgery. And so I went and had the surgery and came home. And now I was divorced. Um, my oldest daughter uh, just turned, I wish, well, she was almost 19, but had joined the Army herself. So she was out of the house. I had a three-year-old that I shared with my ex-wife, but I couldn't take care of her because I was hopping around on one leg, one prosthetic leg and crutches, mm. kind of dealing with this, with this wound on the other leg and waiting for that to heal. I had eight weeks to heal before I could put a leg back on, go back to work. And part of the FMLA is like, you can't talk to your team. And like my team at Wounded Warrior Project were my family. Like they were my friends. Like that was, those were my people. And so I couldn't, I couldn't call them. I couldn't email them. I couldn't answer my email. I couldn't be a dad in a real way, an active way. And I was home alone and I never dealt with um, the depressive side of trauma. I was fortunately able to always find the better way and take the higher road and, you know, like PTSG, like we were talking about post-traumatic growth, like that, you know, I was always able to do it. So I never had a situation where I was feeling the sort of 
negative effects until then. Because mm. now I'm home alone. I can't talk to anybody. I used to self-medicate by like, go climb a mountain, go ride my mountain bike. Go like, uh, and I couldn't do any of those things. So I yeah. got really depressed really quick. And then it, I had nightmares. And the, the whole thing that like was supposed to be normal, but it wasn't normal for me. And then I was like drinking just to not feel that I was taking a handful of Benadryl and chasing it down with whiskey and then hoping I wouldn't wake up. And I was like, all right, this is, this is not good. And I didn't want to call Wounded Warrior Project because I was like, oh, they're going to overreact. And also my ego was involved as a leader too. I didn't yeah. want to look away. So I called a friend of mine and unbeknownst to me, this friend of mine was more like an acquaintance, but for some reason, divine intervention. I felt like I'm going to call this, this, this girl I know. Unbeknownst to me, she had just done uh, a bunch of yoga teacher trainings with some weird dude named Baron Baptiste. Yeah. Strange. And, dude, okay. <laughs> right. <laughs> and then, but I didn't know that. And then, so I'm telling her all these things were happening, telling her how I feel and I'm more snot and tears. And she just listened. And then when I was done, she was like, Dan, you need some yoga in your life. I said, that's the dumbest fucking thing I ever heard. I was so <laughs> mad, Nick. I was like, no. Uh, and so she said, well, what about meditation? And I said, well, okay, that's more palatable. So she taught me how to sit and I started meditating twice a day and it was helpful. It wasn't like a miracle cure or anything, but it was helpful, especially connecting to breath. And then after I got better, I got my leg back and went back to work and, you know, life was good again. The light at the end of the tunnel, I came through it and I, here I am. And uh, I called her to say, thank you. And then she's like, you owe me some yoga. Mm. And I was like, couldn't get out of it, agreed to three private lessons. And the first one sucked bad. Uh, the second one also sucked bad. And I was in pain and I was agony. And I just said, I said, Hey, can I just, I was so like, I was so mad. So can I just do this with my legs off? Hmm. Uh, Cause I was wearing my prosthetics doing all these things. And it was still sore from surgery too. And, um, and it, nobody, Nick, nobody got to shoot my legs off. Like my legs were like my best physical feature when they got blown off. Like I had to deal with that sort of body image shame. Um, and then when I got the prosthetics, it covered it up. And then those were cool, right? Because, oh, wow, you can climb a mountain on prosthetics or ride a bike or do this. And kids always thought they were cool. You know, like that sort of masked my uh, complete shame in what was left of my legs. Got it. Um but I just remember throwing my legs across the floor, like, and just figuring it out. And then I had this moment because I'm like, I'm going to do warrior one. I'm going to figure it out um, on prosthetics and poor Anna is probably just looking down at me and like, and I'm feeling smaller than ever in my whole life. Cause here's this like five foot two yoga teacher in spandex and a ponytail towering over me. Cause I'm on my knees on a mat. And she's looking at me from behind, probably now that I'm like taking myself back, wondering what the hell am I going to do? Tell us got to do with his legs. Like, how am I going to figure this out as a yoga teacher to cue movement? And um, I just said, I'm going to do it myself. And she was saying, you know, stupid things, Nick, like root down to rise up. Like, (laughs) They're not stupid, but they felt stupid at the time. And I was like, I'm just, if I'm going to do this, I'm going to do it. So I just visualized roots growing out of my, like my legs into the, into the, like through my mat, into the earth, like powerful visualization of like, and I, I almost felt it. 
And then in, in Warrior One, you know, you put your arms over your head. And when I did that, the, the earth, like not a metaphor, like the, the planet sent this jolt of energy up through my body that lit me up mm. from the inside out. And my arms flew over my head and tears were streaming out of my eyes. And um, I never felt more powerful more alive, more connected in my whole life. And I was on, on a yoga mat and, um, and I was hooked. I was like, there's, it was like the earth was saying, Dan, where have you been for the last 10 years floating above it on these prosthetic legs? Like not even, not even connected. And I realized that that lack of the basic lack of connection to our planet, that lack of connection was everywhere in my life. I, you know, I used to say that my marriage was a casualty of the war and my marriage was a casualty of connection all my relationships were very surface and um, connection was missing everywhere. And I just went to work putting it back in. And then by my third private lesson, I signed up for my level one yoga teacher training. <laughs> I remember my, my, my third practice with people in it was my first day of level one. And it was a four hour practice in, a, in the bubble in, a, in Hawaii, in the freaking sweat bubble. Uh, for my level one, and I and was Kal like, and Kalani. Yep, that's it. Yeah, I remember that. Yeah, you got it. Uh, and then I was hooked. I was like, I want more and more and more and more. And um, yoga, m movement, and connecting breath and movement has been, I think, my ultimate grounding tool. Um, and breath, and ultimately meditation. Right. So we, you know, you talk about the limbs of yoga, the yamas, the yamas, asana. The, concentration we're always getting the med meditation and meditation has um, really saved me um so many times as, as a human being as a parent um as a spouse as a friend as a uh, as a human and especially you know when i found out i had cancer and it was going through the whys and the why me's and then i had a surgery and the surgery actually went really well but two days later i was back in the hospital with fever and what had happened is my colon had come apart in my body where they had put it back together and um for two days they didn't figure it out until i was dying and then they had to open me up kind of exploratory surgery and i was just full of nasty and as a result of that surgery and of that situation, then me, I, as soon as they opened me up, I popped. Like I remember the resonance that I, I popped. Wow. And then they couldn't, I sw instantly swole and they couldn't even put me back together. So I was like Humpty Dumpty with all exposed everything. And I'm, I'm like awake looking at like, this isn't supposed to like a horror movie. Mm -hmm. And um, had to like be like that for months and months and months until all the drains sucking all the stuff out of my body, like everything was sort of back to kind of normal to where I could get at least closed. And then I had a, I had a bag, like I was like that whole thing. And I, um, I didn't meditate. Like I was so overwhelmed that like I couldn't even, like I couldn't even meditate. I, I couldn't even do it. Couldn't get yourself to do it. You're yeah, like, I, no. I, I forgot. It. It weirdly, I mm. forgot that I had this everyday meditation practice. Or it's like, oh, it's not going to help. This is too much of a big deal or something. I, it was so eminent death, you know, sort of related that it, I, I can't, I don't know why. I mean, yeah. I'm, 
baffled by it. But I remember sitting on this couch right behind me in this that spot right there, like that's my spot. I just sit sat right there yeah. and like laid back when I could barely move. And I just remember saying to myself, I haven't meditated in like eight months. Uh, and it was a daily practice. And then, and like everything was going bad. Like everything was going bad. My attitude wasn't great. I was like tired of being next to death. And I was like, and also dealing with the like, well, just one more thing. Like, haven't I had enough bad things happen? Like, right. Like that whole thing. And I was just like, I just dropped into meditation and it was terrible. Like I couldn't really get to the place I used to go, but then I started putting my meditation back practice back in and everything got better. Wow. My attitude, my outlook. And then as following that, my healing and recovery, and then I started with chemo and then like meditation was very beneficial through chemo. And then, um, yes. Yeah, so, so it's back in my life today. And that is, um, it's been my saving grace for sure. Wow, man. How about, um, how about yoga? What was it like getting back on your yoga mat after it was going tough? Through? Yeah, I bet. It was, it was tough because, well, it was like one thing and then the other. I don't want to belabor the point, but like I was so tight in my core from, so I was open from sternum to pelvis. Yeah. Um, while they had to, when they put me back together, right. Put Humpty Dumpty back together again. Cause I wasn't comfortable practicing when I was all loot. Cause I was like, this is not going to be good for me. As a matter of fact, it was, I was advised not to. Uh, yeah. medically speaking but then I got to the point where like I could and I was all put back together but the scar just contracts and especially because I wasn't able to move my body so eating even standing upright was almost felt like it was ripping my abdominal wall yeah and then right when I got to the point where I could start to practice again like just little movements on the mat at home like I'm not going to the studio yet and I was like okay and then I had to get a surgery on this like eruption of this weird fluid around my liver that exploded out of my side so i'm like leaking this is crazy i mean it's a little graphic but like i'm leaking some anomalous fluid that even the folks at mayo clinic can't say exactly what it is or why it happened but i have all this fluid around my liver and it blew out my side and i'm leaking weird pus like thank god it wasn't stinky like you see on dr pimple popper or anything but it's just <laughs> leaking and i'm like i can't practice because if i bend over like all this stuff is like leaking out of my body so i had to like do and then finally after that finally healed i started practicing again and it has been slow going um mm-hmm. my endurance level isn't quite back yet i lost 50 pounds in that when i couldn't move 40 of the, the 50 pounds i lost was muscle and then I've been, I put about, I put 40 of the 50 pounds back on and maybe 15 of its muscle. Because <laughs> so my doctor, because to have the uh, the surgery that I needed, yeah. they're like, you need to gain weight. But I couldn't really exercise. Mm-hmm. And then so it, they were like, eat cake and ice cream. And there's something about eating cake and ice cream that makes you want to eat more cake and ice cream. Yeah, there is. <laughs> that sugar, uh, man. Mm. Yeah, sugar is the most addictive, addictive substance on the planet. And so I'm right now, like in this conversation, I'm finally getting back to like, okay, I can move. Well, I did, when I started working out again, I ripped a hernia in my abdominal wall. So I still have to be careful. I have to go get one more surgery to repair that and then heal from that. And then 
maybe I can go full bore again. So it's Damn. it's little by little, but I, it I feel good now for the first time in a long time. Mm-hmm. Well, and I think getting back into the activities that you love and that you know are important, the big part of that is how you're feeling going yeah. into it, you know, but then also like you've spoken to this whole entire podcast episode about the mental aspect of it and how mm-hmm. important that is. What do you say to yourself? And, um, you know, for the listeners out there who've fallen out of their yoga practice or fallen out of the things that they love that they want to get back into it, but they're kind of stuck. What do you say to yourself when you just really don't want to do it mentally, but you know that it's going to be good for you yeah. to get yourself doing it again. And it's tough. Cause I, it, it's funny because I, I know exactly what I say to myself, but I also want to be clear about it and say that I said the same thing to myself before and still didn't do it. Right. And that's just like, oh, I know I just need to, I, I know I just need to do it's all in, you can set all the intentions you want. It's in the doing it's in yeah. the action that, that creates results. And it just took, finally saying, well, GD, man, I got to actually do it. I can't just say it anymore. I have to go do. And then it's like, it finally felt better. Like, okay, I did it. Mm. And now how am I feeling better? Okay, now do it again and again. And then you can get back into the routine or habit of being good to yourself. And I think a lot of times, and this is definitely happened for me, and I think it's very real and a lot of people that I, so I, I coach some executives on, on mindfulness, not for the last year and a half, but I'm getting back into it now. Great. And it's that sort of same old thing is like, you have to just understand that you have to actually do the thing, right? Do, do the thing. And then what you want to have happen will happen. And, you know, know what you want to have happen and be for it, as you know, as, as we say. Right. And and that whole process of finally listening to the, the, the sort of knowing that I had, like, I actually have to do it. Having the feeling of like, okay, okay, I do feel better. And then once you get on that train, you know, you're, 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 you know, you're back in it. But so for people that are struggling, like if I, if I'm talking to them, right, I'm like, you have to know that you're good enough. You're worth it. Because this was me. Like, I'm like, why all these bad things have happened to me. So maybe I don't deserve to feel good. Maybe I'm paying some karmic debt from the past. Like, yeah, bullshit. You're worth it. You're worth the time. You're worth the effort. And so the way to, to say to yourself that you're worth it is in the doing. Um, and so when you do that, also you cut out the negative self-talk, right? Because then you actually feel proud of yourself for just stupid thing like walking out of the door. Like even if it's just, I'm going to go to the gym, uh, just walk out the door. And now you're out the door, oh, I got to get in the car now, and now I'm going to the gym, right? So just start with the littlest thing. Just just go out the door with your car keys. Oh, here I am. Might as well get in the car. Oh, might as well go to the gym. And then you work out and you do whatever it is that you can do. And then you come back and you're like, I feel better. And then it's that's the cycle you want to get on. Because once you start feeling good, you're going to feel good. That's right. It doesn't matter what you tell yourself. You got to get out there and do the damn thing. Dang, right? Dang, man. I know you're raising money now for 
cancer. And in the post that I saw that you put up, you talked a little bit about what's called the PACT Act, and it talks yeah. a lot about toxic exposure and how that leads to cancer. Can mm -hmm. you talk about more about that and um, why you're passionate about raising money for and bringing awareness to yeah. uh, that whole situation? Absolutely. So I'm raising money actually uh, for breast cancer, right? So <clears throat> again... Uh, women are my favorite uh, version of the species. I have three daughters, an amazing wife, uh, a granddaughter. And so I am blessed to have amazing women in my life. And I know men also get breast cancer, but at a much lesser degree. And all reproductive cancers. So the PACT Act is basically uh, some legislation. It's, it's a promise to keep, it's basically keeping America's promise to people who've been, uh, victims of toxic exposure from from combat like even back to agent orange in vietnam like the brutal reality about combat is you know they're not really uh being great stewards of the environment during combat like it is what it is right the burn pits there's depleted uranium shells there's all and plus i'm in iraq like who knows what else is there from from their time operating in these bases that were we've taken over and so the PACT Act basically, to boil it down really simply, basically states that if you've been in any of these certain combat zones, so talking about Iraq, Afghanistan, a bunch of other, like going back in time to Korea, right? That if you have any of these lists of cancers, and it's an extensive list, like any GI cancer, any reproductive cancer, if you have that, any of those cancers, and have served in any of those list of places, then the government automatically presumes that that cancer is directly related to your service. Hmm. And which, you know, I was very careful about what, into, what I put into my body and I was taking good care of myself and I'm physically fit, like all the things. And to get a cancer diagnosis, I was kind of blown away. And so were my doctors. And so they even pointed to the fact that it might be toxic exposure. And then the PACT Act happened after my diagnosis sort of came into law. And so for me, I want, like, I want people, like, if you know, if you're someone who has served overseas in a combat environment or, or feel like you've been in an environment where you were exposed to toxins, go get screened, like get checked out because those you know, known carcinogens that are out there and, and the things that we don't know are carcinogens yet, especially being in the military and all of the things that they burn in the burn pits and everything else, like you gotta go get looked at and go get checked because um, you can catch something early and then not have to deal with what I went through at stage three. Thankfully, it caught it before stage four. But then, God, and hopefully if they have a, a surgery to make it go away or, or take the cancer out, they don't have the complications that I had. But like, go get checked out so you can actually just see what you're working with. Get a chest x-ray, get your blood work. You know, if you've been a veteran, like go to the VA. If you don't have health care right now, if there's somebody out there listening who has served and don't doesn't have health care, you can get through the PACT Act free lifetime VA health care benefits. So you'll have a primary care doctor and you'll be covered for surgeries and everything else. Like go get checked out because this is like historic level of opportunity um, for veterans to be able to get taken care of for things that they didn't even know were killing them.
Mm-hmm. Um, and so knowing that all reproductive cancers are um, covered and breast cancer being one of them, all forms of breast cancer. Yeah. I encourage everybody, if they're listening, go to my Instagram at Dan Nevins, D-A-N-N-E-V-I-N-S. There's a, a link in my bio to donate. And, and my goal is just 5,000 bucks uh, for the American Cancer Society, all geared towards breast cancer research. Um, I'm just a dude and who wants to, to help women, help all people really. Um, but I'm passionate about um, helping our stronger sex uh, be as healthy as possible. Yeah, dang right, Dan. Oh, man. This has been the greatest hour and 20 minutes I've had in a long time, buddy. Thanks, bro. I appreci- appreciate that you've taken the time to be a part of this show. Heck yeah, man. Share yourself again. Um, you know, Play Hard and Love Big Radio is dedicated to bringing the inspirational peoples and stories so that people go out and live their mo- most purposeful and passionate life. And I couldn't think of any better person to come on to our show and to share. You've been incredible and inspirational and um, I always learn something new from you and I'm rejuvenated and reinvigorated to go out and to live my life better because uh, you are my friend. So thank you, man. I really appreciate it. Um, y'all out there that are listening, thank you for sharing our show. We've been getting better numbers and uh, it's really neat. And I know that's because you guys are sharing it with the people that you think can benefit. So share this and share this with people that are vets that are out there um, mm-hmm. so that they can get a better understanding of the PACT Act so they can get a better understanding of how yoga can make a difference. Yoga and meditation can make a difference for them and their lives. And uh, come join us sometime at Spotted Dog Yoga and Sup here in Folsom. Uh, we are available in person and also online nowadays. Uh, so check us out at spotteddogyoga.com. Uh, any final parting words from you there, Dan? Yeah, so understanding that uh, a lot of your listeners might already be a yoga type of person, um, invite a veteran to yoga. You just might save their life. Invite a veteran to yoga. You might just save their life. Dang right. Dan Nevins. All right, my man. Thank you everyone for listening in and have a great rest of your day. Peace out. Boom, 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 boom.